What is up, Internet? Welcome to Self-Defense from All Angles, the podcast where we try to break the echo chamber around self-defense and self-protection. I'm your host, Randy King, speaker on all things proactive skills and owner and operator of 8020 Conflict Management Strategies. This week on the show, we have Martin from Critical Response. Martin is also one of the hosts of the Rand Rory Tour. He is in Hamburg, Germany. Martin is so well-versed on these topics, and honestly, I couldn't have said any of the things on the show better myself. He is a student of self-protection from literally all angles, and it really shows in this conversation. We have an in-depth talk about self-defense versus self-protection and his definitions of the two. We talk about the importance of boundaries and what he believes is one of the major commonalities that occur her all throughout violence. Also, he talks about some of the things that he believes are issues in training. And then, of course, don't forget to join us over on Patreon, where Martin shares a story from a civilian perspective on de-escalation. It was very interesting, and I like the story that he chose. And don't forget, if you're looking for a speaker to talk on proactive self-protection skills or someone to come into your workplace and help train your staff on the realities of workplace violence, don't forget to get a hold of us at 8020cms.com. Now let's get on to the show. This week, we have on my friend Martin. He is a self-defense coach in Germany. He is one of the stops on the Rand Rory Seminar Tour. We're doing a guest stop at his place in Hamburg. Martin, how are you today? Hey, man, I'm awesome. A little late here in Germany. It's probably early for you, but I'm ready to go. Let's do this thing. That's awesome. I'm really excited to have you. So I've had you on a couple of shows before and we see eye to eye on a lot of self-defense issues. We've talked back and forth, uh, recorded and not recorded. Martin, why don't you tell the listeners what your definition of self-defense is? Let's take a step back. Self-defense for me is the very um, like legal, physical application of force. So I'm getting attacked. I'm stopping this attack in a moral, ethical, and legal sense. That's the very core concept of force, physical violence, getting attacked, punching, kicking, this stuff. That's self-defense. I personally like to to put another layer on it, and I call it self-protection, because being safe from violence is so much more than physical fighting. As you know, and probably most of your listeners, the attack does not start with a punch. There's a pretense to this. Somebody is picking you for a violent act. What does he want? Does he want to feel strong? Does he want to kick somebody because he enjoys it? Does he need to show his people, his peer group that he's uh, rough? Does he want some money? There are so many different dynamics to violent encounter that just looking at the physical portion of it is way too little. So in essence, self-protection is about living a safe and a good life. So everything from understanding violence to avoidance, communication, escape tactics to physical fighting and everything in the aftermath, like the law, the ethical stuff, um, psychological consequences, how to talk to your your partner, your boss, your, your mother that you maybe hurt somebody in an encounter. It's everything. And I like two analogies. One is first aid. And the other is uh, being safe uh, in the traffic situations. So self-protection is like being a first responder for a violent encounter that is happening to you. Most first aiders, I'm like walking in the park, somebody's having a heart attack, I'm able them. But nobody's there to help me in a physical encounter if I'm unlucky than myself. So I have to be able to use 
skills, knowledge, resilience, the, the making of a decision while under duress for the best possible solution that I'm being safe afterwards. Sometimes it's begging for your life. Sometimes it's giving somebody money. Sometimes it's fighting somebody. Sometimes it's running away. And if you're just looking at fighting, it's so little compared to dealing with the problem that is violence. It's way bigger. So self-protection has to have like a wholesome, holistic approach to understanding. And that's like a little bit rambling, but that's my core definition of self-defense versus self-protection. No, that was perfect. And I find it interesting. You are the third person from Europe that defies self-protection as the overarching thing and self-defense as the small thing, where most people over here reverse it. They say self-protection is the fighting part and self-defense is the whole thing, which is why we asked this question on the show, because there's going to be so many different definitions of self-defense and self-protection. I love that definition, but obviously I do. I'm biased. It's very similar to my definition of it. So Martin, why don't you tell the listeners something you wish more people understood about self-protection and violence? Like little excourse. I'm a civilian. I, I've never been a, a, a bouncer. I've never been a policeman or social. I'm teaching from a purely civilian perspective violence, but most people that uh, end up in a violent encounter are civilians. So looking at at it from this angle, the most important, most underrated, but so valuable skill is boundary setting. If I'm able to set, set a boundary and defend it like verbally or maybe even physically, that's so important. If we understand how violence works and most kinds of violence are either spur of the moment, high emotions in effect, like the, the bar fights, like people yelling at each other. That's not planned. Nobody is uh, waking up this morning saying, hey, the first person who looks at me funny, I'm punching them. And on the other side, we have planned violence. And it could be high end, like somebody kidnapping you to torture, murder you. But most of it is low intensity, the, the creep in the office, right? Somebody standing next to you and making inappropriate jokes and, and looking at looking maybe at your body and uh, it's like like something like this. And this is so much more common because it's this gray area of it's so hard to legally define it's inappropriate or to, to follow up with sanctions, but it's it's the, the setup of violence. And then to bring it back around, if I'm a perpetrator and I'm looking at you and you're not able to physically or even verbally set a boundary to tell me no, that means I can probably do whatever I want. If you're not able to say no to somebody, then you're probably emotionally not ready to fight them because it's not a symmetrical boxing match. Let's see who's harder, who has the bigger punch, but it's an, it's like a battle of control tactics. If I can psychologically isolate you, guilt you into doing something, maybe force you, maybe blackmail you, that's so much easier than fighting somebody, especially for the high ends of violence, like torture, rape, murder, kidnapping, human trafficking, that's not done by fighting one-on-one. -on -one. That's done by being able to pick somebody who's, uh, who's uh, maybe addicted, who's uh, mentally weak, who's low self-worth, who has a history of trauma and abuse, and abuse them even more. So boundary setting enables you to say no to people that want to do you harm in any way. And it has like a halo effect. If I'm setting a good boundary with somebody who's a little bit inappropriate, I never know who's watching. Maybe there's the real big perpetrator creep watching me and he's thinking, oh, not this person. He's able to set a boundary. I'm picking somebody that's way easier. 
there's halo effect in one direction. And I think the other one is very underrated too. Like in, in an office setting, there's like the office creep who's always standing too close to, to especially the women. And I'm able to set a boundary. And everybody else sees, oh, we can handle him. It's possible. We can tell him no. And especially for like the, the one person in the office who is timid, who's weak, who's not able to speak up because they are not allowing themselves to do so, it can give them strength. And humans are so social and we interact with it, with each other all the time. So showing off that safety can be infectious too is very easily done by boundaries. I love it. Obviously, I'm a huge proponent of boundary setting. I have a course designed for it. So I think that this is one of the most under-discussed topics is setting those boundaries, showing the world how you want to be treated. This will, like you said, that halo effect is a very good example of it. It'll show on both sides, right? Oh, I can't pick on this person, but also, oh, if I act like this, that won't happen to me, which is amazing. So you, but you're talking about violence in a overarching view. So you're not just talking about the kicking and the punching and the choking, which a lot of people talk about because in my opinion, they're the easier answers, right? If you do this, I do that. The squishy answers, the gray areas, as you said, you know, my grandfather's doing it. Okay. Well, maybe you can't throw pop grandpa in the middle of a situation. So with all of this, are there some, there are commonalities between these types of violence that people can be aware of? I think the most common thing in a violent encounter is that somebody's putting their interests over yours because I'm choosing I want this and it doesn't matter that you do not want it because I want it so hard I'm just taking it so the core element of violence is forcing somebody to do something they do not want so it's a lot about participation and and consent if I'm saying to you let's go outside we fight and you say yeah fuck yeah let's go it's not self-defense and violence in the sense that it is symmetrical. You're willing to do this. And maybe you get hurt. Maybe I get hurt. Maybe somebody is cheating and it escalates. But it's more like a duel than like an ambush. And self-defense or self-protection should be more focused on ambush type situations. And it's always somebody is choosing their target and choosing their goal whether it's the creep who wants to get his little kick by making somebody scared or the, the sociopath, psychopath who wants to murder somebody. But it's always, I want this. It doesn't matter what you want. It's just about how can I take it? And kicking and punching, it's, it's a tool set. It's a methodology. And again, the boundary setting, most experienced criminals, like the people who are really scary, they have a lot of psychological tools like guilting somebody, like distracting somebody, like getting information beforehand they can use against you, like picking somebody who's weak, timid, all this stuff. So it's on one part about uh, the dynamical setup, you and me equal, or I want you, you're not my equal, I will just take it. And on the other side, it's about the toolkit. And looking at the punch, that's like the most boring part of a violent encounter. Because it's highly predictable. It's done in a very clear reference frame. So there are not much variation of punches and kicks and chokes and whatever. So if you understand fighting, even a little bit, it's more about being emotionally able to hurt somebody, being resilient enough to take a punch and keep going, being uh, quick on your feet to analyze what's the situation and how can you solve it. But the whole setup, like the whole way human interaction can lead to violence. Like you said, 
grandpa is getting aggressive and does his racist comments and how do I deal with this? There's so much more setup than left hook, right hook, whatever. It's a little bit like you said, training physical violence is gratifying. It's easy. It's fun. And that's totally all right. But it's not preparation for violence. It's preparation for fighting. And even though there are some commonalities, it's very different. And the most important bond in violence is it doesn't matter what you want. It just matters what the perpetrator wants. And you have to stop him any way possible. That's a fantastic way to put it. The bottom of our training stack is permission, allowing yourself, yeah. give yourself permission to do the things you need to do, right? To defend yourself, knowing you're worth it. As you've mentioned, you hit two really interesting points that I want to walk out separately. Point number one, you talked about was dangerous people have other tools other than violence. And I think that is one of the biggest misnomers in the self-defense space is that just because somebody has the capacity to do violence is that they're going to want to do violence. And in my experience between military units and criminals, they prefer no incident happens. They would rather use psychological tools. They would rather use a uh, blackmail, trickery, ambush. They actually don't want violence to happen. In fact, the people that live the most in violence are the ones that try to avoid it the most. Why do you think that is? I think like these truly violent individuals, whether on the good side of, of law and the ethic, like policemen, like, like soldiers, or on the bad side, highly experienced criminals, these groups are so utterly pragmatic. They're choosing the tool most suited for the job. If it's a high degree of violence, like shock and awe going in with everything they have, they will do it. But most of the time, this is not necessary. Most people aren't... Um, mentally and physically ready for high intensity violence because it's hard it's rare it sucks all the stuff it's even easier to trick them to guilt them to push them into a corner and then get what you want most people aren't willing willing to to like walk the extra mile and this goes for criminals because then again they are not just pragmatic, they're human beings. You're never just a criminal. You're a human being that is a criminal. So the core fundamentals of human psychology will work for you. And one is that humans are lazy. We hate, we hate to work. We hate to work extra than we have to. Unchecked, most people would cheat on their work. They're like, eh, I'm done now. I can, I can finish this next time or my colleagues can do something like this. And if I'm a criminal, why should I work hard? Especially criminals, they are like the subset of humans who is living outside the rules because they don't want to follow the rules because it's easier not to do it's more thrilling something like this and if i'm going in giving you a chance to fight back it's a little bit like a, a social rule following consensual interaction on the other hand i can just do whatever i want i can just scream at you i can just punch you can just take it i can be scary and get it this way. Why should I work for it? That's such a great point. Why do you think that civilian training has this so reversed where they're just focusing so primarily on that microcosm of the encounter of the fight? Like, why do you think people, especially civilians are gravitating more towards that than towards proactive skills and learning other tools to avoid violence? I think there's a real cluster fuck because there's so many things coming together. The first one, like I said, most civilians 
do not have a lot of violence experience. Like most people maybe had a brawl in their school days or, or college days, or maybe they got mucked sometime and that's even that's extreme for most civilians that's not the standard most people got screamed at by a drunk and that's it so without the blueprint to understand violence from a cognitive level but also from an emotional level how fucking scary people can be and if i do not know this i can pretend a little bit to be safe it's almost like an, an extension of Carrying a gun like a like a talisman, like a ritual. If I have my gun, I'm safe. If I have my knife, I'm safe. If I have a strong left hook, I'm safe because I can fight. And I mean, training is better than just carrying a tool and not knowing how to use it. But training is, especially physical training, is just a part of it. So one, if I do not know what violence looks like in the sense of an interaction that is psychologically physically oriented to a specific goal i do not know what solutions i have to understand it's a little bit like the doctor coming in into the, the hospital room and saying we are giving this medication without even checking what the patient has so first look at the problem then the solution that's the first thing and that's that's easily corrected with a good trainer and people that are willing to listen the other thing is way deeper and again a psychological thing you can feel powerful in fighting you can feel strong you have an immediate feedback you feel um, like you can control an encounter and it can give a huge kick to your identity and your ego and some people get lost in this i have to be the strongest fighter maybe they are feared of losing because they lost once maybe they're feared of losing because it's so integral to their identity and it's an easy way to ignore the complexities of life like everybody is losing some people are just cheating and not straight up dueling with you and this psychological phenomena it's very easily used by trainers sometimes uh, i think most of the times it's it's unwilling like they are falling into the same trap i have to be strong not to get targeted i have to fight well to to be able to protect myself but it's very often reaffirming i want to feel strong so i do something that makes me feel strong so i feel strong and it's a circle and comparing these two like not knowing what violence is and feeling strong through fighting can be a terrible dangerous setup if they once encounter a truly uh, violent individual like somebody who was gangbanger somebody who's a uh, psychopathic somebody who has high experiences with violence and these people will just walk straight through them because they know the emotional context they know the emotional readiness to do violence and they know it's asymmetrical it's not about fighting it's about destroying i think that's a really good point and this is where we differentiate social violence from asocial violence yes. right is most fighting arts are dealing with the social side of things. Yeah. If you go toe to toe with me, I should be able to beat you. But when it comes to predatory violence, when it comes to that asocial side of things, the distinction I like to make is social violence answers the question, if I can take you, right? Yeah. What do I need to do that I can beat you for in a fair fight? 
social, asocial violence, predatory violence is how can I take you? Oh, so you're a world mixed martial arts champ. Cool. I guess I'm shooting you from a car because mm -hmm. I'm not going to engage with somebody because I know you have this protection, this training. And that's the major difference to me is like you said, when you said they're going to walk through the person, you don't mean they're going to beat them up in a bar fight. You mean they're going to get them, mug them, shoot them, drug yeah. them, do another tactic. And this is Whatever. where... This is where the armor of social violence actually becomes a liability because you believe you're so invincible from all comers that you can't even fathom somebody being tricky to take you out. Yes, like cheating. Cheating always gets those uh, fighter mentalities. And I have, I have two things I would like to address in this uh, continuum. Continue term. The first is if we're dealing with social violence, yeah, I could fight you, but all the ethical, the legal stuff afterwards, it's so much easier to communicate. Hey man, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to look mean at you. I didn't want to step your toes. I didn't want to spill your beer, whatever it is. So training to communicate in an effective sense for a violent encounter, not just words, but also my, my body posture, the way I'm interacting, all the stuff. This deals with like, I'm going to say almost 99% of all social violence because you kind of have to be a dick to end up in social violence. So if you're not being a dick and you're dealing appropriately with the other person, chances of going physical are very low. But that's not as fun to train. So I can't generate my strong identity from being a, a good talker and being able to apologize very well. But it's a super important tactical skill. That's one thing. On the other side, like I said, if there's predator truly wants something we'll just figure out the angle how to get it Vark freeborn calls it the high order predator so if i see you are strong you're prepared you're aware you're carrying a knife in your pocket okay i'm just choosing more violence more aggressive violence more sneaky violence to get what i want and these people these high order predators they're super rare like they're concentrated in some subcultures like criminal elite soldiers this stuff but they are very rare to interact with a civilian because most of the time they do not want to most of the times they they know if they kill a civilian there will be repercussions like law enforcement and stuff and it's not serving their goal but then again maybe you're unlucky maybe you're walking in this one individual and then your fighter mentality i'm not taking shit from nobody and this is going to be a really bad day so dealing with communication, being a little bit humble, understanding violence, looking at posture. So if I'm if I'm seeing this other guy, he's he's kind of small, but the way he's carrying himself, the way he's looking, the scars on his arm, the little calmness in the situation, it's just like hairs on the back of your neck should be standing up. This is not the guy you want to fuck with. This is the guy you want to leave alone and apologize to. But you have to be, you have to take a step back from your ego to do this. But if your ego is invested and I'm strong, nobody is uh, attacking me, that's not self-defense. That's feeling good about yourself and feeling good about yourself is not related to solving a problem. First one, communication, right? So social violence. And the second one, these high-order predator mentality. So if, if somebody wants to take something with violence, it's a matter of how to do it, not if they can do it. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, Martin is bringing myself and Rory Miller in for a guest stop at his club so if you are in the hamburg area get a hold of martin he will be hosting us for a three-hour seminar he can talk about what we're doing there and all that kind of stuff we are doing a european tour all of september so we're there from the 11th i believe until the 4th we're doing uh, five different countries two dates per country so it's a very heavy tour 
one of the stops, like it says, Martin's, please come check it out wherever is closest to you. We always want to make this as beneficial to the host as possible. Obviously, bringing in two instructors that travel the world is not cheap. It's not. There's just no way it can be. You have to feed us. You have to fly us in. You have to do all this stuff. So the more people that can come, the better. And also get a really cool chance to train with two experts, quote unquote, in the field. So, and also meet Martin. If you've just listened to the interview, Martin is very well versed in this. I literally everything Martin just said is exactly what I would say in a very similar conversation, just in a different way. So that is awesome. Come and take advantage of this tour. Martin, why don't you tell the people how they can get a hold of you, where to find the info on the seminar and what we're covering? Okay, let's start with what we're covering because that's the most interesting part, right? We're doing like uh, control and restraint tactics, we called it. And my approach to this was both Rory and you are violence professionals. You worked in this field for a very long time. Rory in, in uh, like law enforcement in the prison system and you on the civilian security side, like, like bouncing close protection. And besides from communication and team tactics, your primary approach is not beating the guy it's controlling them it's moving them out of the venue taking them down cuffing them so it's a controlling and restraining tactic this is something i personally miss a little bit in my skill set because i'm a civilian i either run away or i will punch you but i'm not controlling you what right. for but uh, a little bit like they like the the uh, racist grandfather sometimes controlling could be valuable so uh taking this skill set from from you guys as highly experienced professionals it will be a lot of fun we are training in a school like not a not a studio not a fight club like a real school so we have stairs we have uh, uh, we have corners we have toilets we have rooms we have tables so we are trying to set up a little bit more realistic content for moving people taking them down controlling them it will be the 13th of september and the easiest way to get a hold of me is either by Facebook or by a mail. And I could tell you a link now, but Randy's probably putting this all in the show notes. And so check the show notes, get into contact, shoot me a message on either social media or just via mail, and we'll get you started. Awesome. And I think, like Martin said, this is one of the areas that civilian self-defense doesn't focus on a lot because the goal is preservation, right? So get away or strike to get away. Like that's the whole purpose. But as you mentioned in the interview, not all violence is serial killers and ex-Navy SEALs. It's creeps at work. It's the drunk uncle. It's whatever. And having a goal set is the most important part of your training. And for me, there's four major occurrences that are going to happen in self-defense. So you can escape, obviously, number one, manage distance and get away. That's priority one. Not always an option. So option two is incapacitating the person, taking out the fight from them. So whether you're hurting them enough, they can't keep going or whatever. Then there's what we're doing here, which is control. Control is one of the hardest things to do. And this is where people who don't have any training get confused when they see bouncers or prison guards or police officers trying to restrain somebody is they the person they're trying to restrain is allowed to fight full force and we the duty bound people are restrained we are we are captured by the law of not being able to do back what they're allowed to do to us so having the capacity to control another human being is one of the most desirable skills if you're looking to end a confrontation with the least amount of damage and that's it's not as sexy it's not as cool as punching and kicking the groin is but 
it is so functional because like you said, it might be a creep at work and a creep at work is not, you can't blow their knee out and pop their throat. You might need to just get them in a lock, turn them. And just as a preview to what we're doing, there's different goals for restraint tactics as well. I will be teaching transportation locks. I will be teaching how to get somebody out of a building because that was my job. Rory will be teaching how to pin someone and put cuffs on them because that was his job. There's only two reasons, in my opinion, to use control tactics. One is a transport, two is to restrain. That's it. There's no other reason other than like ego tapping, that kind of stuff. But in real life, you're either applying locks and control tactics to move the person safely or to incapacitate them so you can then cuff them and go to a secondary. So that's kind of a preview of what I think we're going to be teaching. That's my end. I have a lot of really effective ways to show people how to move people out of a building. My proudest moment, I was teaching in Edinburgh and we had a lady, she was a hundred, maybe a hundred pounds. So like 50, maybe 52 kilo. And she took a dude, like six foot four dude. She got him in the things we're going to show and she actually moved him. And she was like, oh my God, this stuff works. I'm like, yeah, I made a living off of it. Yes. And even though I'm a big guy, I'm not small. I'm six foot one. I'm not the biggest person ever. There's lots of huge dudes. They grow very large Ukrainians where I come from. They all start at six, four. So we have to have tactics that will work for smaller people. So if you're interested in that in the show notes, like Martin said, that's going to be there. Don't forget to follow me on all social media at the fence talks with that on TikTok. is the channel reporting the most. That's me and my daughter doing self-defense tips, questions, etc. There will be an episode with my daughter on this show. She's done a survey of her friends in her age group about their self-defense concerns. So we're going to do a show together. Look for that in the future. Right now, we are jumping over to Patreon, where Martin is going to tell us his one-up story, where he tells us the story that makes him the coolest person in the room, or continues this lesson. So join us, patreon.com slash randykinglive. If you can't make it over there, totally understandable. Like, share, subscribe, hit every button you can on these things. The more people that know about this podcast, the better it's going to do. The better it does, the more I do it. So if you want more content like this, please share it.